we are very pleased to present Dr. Anna N. Stepanova, who is the Associate Professor at the Plant and Microbial Biology here at NC State, and she'll be talking to us about building a SynBio toolbox to monitor and control plant hormone activity. And Dr. Stepanova received her undergraduate training at the University of Nevada in Reno and Lobachevsky State University of Nizhnya Novgorod, Russia. She did her graduate work in the laboratory of Joseph Ecker, earning her PhD degree in biology from University of Pennsylvania for the study of nuclear events in ethylene signaling. And for her postdoc training, she worked with Jose Alonso at NC State, exploring the crosstalk between ethylene and auxin. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Anna, for attending. Um, thank you for this invitation and hello, everyone. Um, I'd like to use this opportunity to share with you some of the work that we do in the Alonso Stepanova lab here at North Carolina State University. We are a plant lab and we use Herbidopsis, tobacco and tomato as our primary research models. Casey, all right. A fundamental question that we and many others in plant sciences would like to address is what makes plants successful? As you know, unlike most animals, plants are sessile organisms. Since they can't move, they get to spend their entire lives in one place, whatever that might be, yet they've learned to adapt to a variety of environmental conditions and thrive in many different climates. The overarching goal of our group's research is to decipher the molecular mechanisms of plant adaptation and stress tolerance. What we would like to understand is how plants perceive a multitude of external signals, interpret them, and produce appropriate responses, coordinating growth and development with the environment, and thus surviving and reproducing often hostile conditions. Multiple studies suggest that at the heart of signal integration process lies a small set of plant hormones. There are nine major classes of non-peptide hormones known in plants that are all listed here. And my group's research focuses on the study of two hormones, ethylene and auxin, and on understanding the molecular mechanisms of biosynthesis and action of these two growth regulators. And in this talk, I will use hormone ethylene as my case study. I will give you an overview of how basic genetics helps with the discovering um, of the molecular components of ethylene biosynthesis and signaling, and then tell you about the ongoing project in the lab that employs synthetic biology to build hormone biosensors, including those for monitoring hormone ethylene. Let me start with a little bit of history. The first reports documenting the key role of ethylene in plant development are that of thick gashing in Egypt as a fast way to induce thick fruit ripening. We now know that tissue wounding triggers ethylene production, which then in turn stimulates ripening. In ancient China, folks used to leverage indoor incense burning, that as it turns out releases ethylene, as a way to induce pear fruit ripening. And in more recent times, in the late 19th century, several reports of gas leaks from street lanterns in European cities described very unusual consequences of the leaks on surrounding plants, such as stunted plant growth and sudden defoliation, leaf loss in trees. In 1901, a Russian scientist named Dmitry Nelubov, who at the time was still a grad student, demonstrated that the active component of the illuminating gas, alkene ethylene, was responsible for those unusual effects on plants. Here is an example of a um, midsummer um, tree defoliation in a German town in late 1800s. The plants 
along the um, gas line lost all of their leaves, whereas the plants um, a little bit on the back um, have normal summer foliage. And the Lubov went on to show that in dark green PC links, shown here on the right, exposure to low doses of ethylene, less than one part per million, so very minute quantities, drastically alters plant morphology as well as gravity responses. We now know that ethylene gas is a critical growth regulator that controls many different processes in plants, including um, organ senescence, fruit ripening, seed germination, programmed cell death, root nodulation, responses to stress and pathogens, organ abscission, flower sex determination, and cell elongation. Can plants make ethylene themselves? And the answer is big yes. Ethylene is an endogenous, meaning plant-produced compound, um, and ripening climacteric fruits, such as coffee fruits shown here, produce lots of ethylene, which triggers ripening and use processes, including fruit softening, color and flavor development, and so on. In fact, many fruits, such as bananas, pears, cantaloupes, avocados, mangoes, tomatoes, and many others, are harvested green and firm, transported unripe, and then at the grocers, rather than having to wait for the fruits to make their own ethylene to ripen naturally, unripe fruits are often treated with exogenous, that is externally added ethylene, as shown here for avocados, to induce fruit ripening on site, right before fruits are sold to consumers. The downside of ethylene is that ripe or ripening fruits continue to make and emit ethylene, which triggers over-ripening, senescence, and spoilage. So to be able to store fruits and vegetables longer, ethylene is often filtered away um, in storage rooms to try to prolong the shelf life of fruits and vegetables. Or for long-term storage, chemical inhibitors of ethylene, such as 1-MCP invented here at North Carolina State Universities, are often applied to delay senescence and extend shelf life of climacteric fruits and vegetables. In summary, while ethylene is most famous for its ripening effects, it's also responsible for fruits and vegetables going to waste due to spoilage. Accordingly, a thorough understanding of how ethylene works would equip us with biotechnological tools to control its critical processes and enable us to reduce food waste. To be able to apply biotechnologies, we need to understand how ethylene works at the molecular level by discovering the genes responsible for ethylene by perception and response. How do we do that? Most of what we know about the genes involved in these processes comes from using Arabidopsis, a small mustard plant that serves as a primary research model for many plant biologists. Just like Nilubus pea plants, Arabidopsis seedlings germinated in the presence of exogenous ethylene display major phenotypic changes, known cumulatively as the triple response, characterized by shortening and thickening of hypocotyl, which is an embryonic stem, and root, an exaggeration of the apical hook curvature. Here I'm showing you an image of a three-day-old plant, Arabidopsis seedling, exposed to ethylene next to a plant that is grown in regular hydrocarbon-free air that is in controlled conditions without ethylene. Even to a non-expert, it is easy to see the morphological differences between the control and ethylene-treated plant. Now, how can we use a triple response assay to shed light on the genes required for these phenotypes? Well, what we can do is we mutagenize Arabidopsis and screen for mutant plants that due to mutations in key ethylene-related genes are defective in their ethylene biosynthesis, perception, signaling and response, and thus are unable to mount the triple response in presence of ethylene. 
such as the super tall ceiling in the middle, um, that is standing out clearly in the lawn of normally sensing plants. Or vice versa, we can search for mutant plants that show the triple response even in the absence of the hormone. So then if we can identify, aka clone, the causal genes responsible for abnormal phenotypes, which these days we can do generation sequencing, we can learn what the genes are and study how they function. Armed with that knowledge, we can then manipulate these genes to control ethylene-regulated processes, including fruit ripening, pathogen response, and so on. Again, to get to the genes, we first look for mutants that, for example, no longer sense ethylene, such as this iron or ethylene insensitive mutants, or vice versa, we seek plants that respond to ethylene all the time and show constitutive ethylene phenotype, either due to constitutive ethylene signaling or ethylene overproduction, as shown here on the right. So what do we do next? We pick candidate mutants displaying an abnormal phenotype, such as this super tall seedling um, that is falling into our iron category. We grow them up. We back cross mutant plants to wild type parents. This is done to both learn the mode of mutation inheritance, dominant or recessive, as well as to clean away any unrelated mutations a plant may have. We then work to identify the causal genes. And in the old times, this was done by so-called positional mapping to clone point or indel mutations. Um, for example, if, um, if chemicals like EMS or radiation were used to generate the mutant collection, or if you work with insertional lines, such as tDNA lines or transposon mutants, uh, we usually perform so-called border site rescue and same sequencing to identify the insertion positions. These days, what we typically do is we use next-gen sequencing to identify candidate causal genes based on the presence of sequence polymorphisms in the genome, and then to pinpoint the causal gene, um, we look at the co-segregation of the candidate polymorphisms as detected by Sanger sequencing in this case with a mutant phenotype. In the case of a typical recessive ion or ethylene insensitive gene, all plants that are inherited two copies of the, um, of the mutant locus that are homozygous for the mutation are uh, going to be tall both in air and in ethylene whereas plants that are either wild type or heterozygous for the mutation will be phenotypically wild type. And once the gene of interest is identified, that's when the fun part begins. The functional analysis of the clone gene to try to understand how this gene works in the molecular pathway of interest. In our case, either in ethylene biosynthesis or in ethylene signaling. We can make knockout alleles, uh, for example, via CRISPR. We can make knockdowns through RNA interference or artificial microRNA. We can overexpress our favorite genes by placing the gene under the control of a so-called constitutive or strongly. We can misexpress our favorite genes um, in the wrong tissue or at a wrong time, and then study the consequences of this misexpression on the process of interest in the case of ethylene sensitivity, maybe by looking at the triple response or at the senescence phenotypes or pathogen resistance and so on. We can also study gene expression patterns that are um, very extensive. There are extensive methods for that uh, from RTQPCR um, to gene reporters to in situ hybridization. Um, and then that allows us to figure out when and where the gene is active. So we can focus on specific tissues and specific stages of development that um, are requiring the gene for either ethylene perception or ethylene signaling. Um, we can then shed light on the function of the protein of interest, but 
investigating what potential protein partners are with methods like yeast to hybrid or co-immunoprecipitation uh, followed by, by uh, mass spec. Um, this gives us an idea as to what other proteins, our favorite protein may be working with um, in a collaborative relationship. Um, we often also look at specific protein activity, but the specific assays that we run depend on what the sequence of our favorite gene looks like. For example, if our gene looks like an enzyme based on its similarity to previously characterized enzymes, we're likely to write it around an enzymatic assay. Um, if our gene looks like a transcription factor because it has a conserved DNA binding domain, most likely we're going to be running um, DNA binding assays, or um, maybe we're going to be looking at transactivation capacity of our favorite gene, and so on. So what I described to you, starting with a mutant phenotype, such as defective triple response anethylene, and ending with a causal gene is referred to as forward genetics. In science, we often also follow a reverse discovery path, reverse genetics. Um, in that case, you start with a candidate gene, for example, a gene that is homologous in sequence to the gene of interest, or a gene identified as strongly regulated by ethylene at the transcriptional level, or maybe as a binding partner of our favorite protein in a yeast to hybrid assay. And then once we have the gene, we generate a mutation such as through CRISPR. And then the goal here is to test the requirement for this gene's, um, for this gene's function for, and in this, our case, ethylene related response. So this is referred to as reverse genetics when we start with a gene, introduce mutations, and then we look at the phenotype of um, mutant plants. So in reality, most of what we do is actually a combination of forward and reverse genetics. In fact, with respect to ethylene signaling, the first genes were all discovered via forward genetics. And once we had key pathway genes mapped out, we were able to branch out and learn about additional players through reverse genetics by using a candidate gene approach that I described here on the right. To make the long story short, using forward and reverse genetics, along with molecular biology, biochemistry, cell biology, and genomics, in the past 30 years, we've been able to uncover the main molecular machinery involved in ethylene biosynthesis signaling and response. I will spare you the details, but we'll just mention that the signaling pathway encompasses multiple subcellular compartments and the plasmic reticulum, um, the cytosol, cytoplasmic P bodies, and the nucleus. And the molecular machinery involved in ethylene signaling consists of both conserved and unique signaling molecules, including transmembrane proteins, kinases, um, metal transporter-like proteins, um, transcription factors, F-box proteins, and so on. Likewise, in ethylene biosynthesis, um, we have the pathway now worked out. And not only do we know the enzymes um, required for the production of um, ethylene as a hormone, but also specific regulatory mechanisms and inputs that control the last two steps of the pathway that lead to ethylene production. One of the remaining bottlenecks in the ethylene field, as well as in the study of other plant growth regulators, is the difficulty with detecting and quantifying hormones with sufficient resolution. Over the years, various approaches have been developed to track plant hormones, specialized instrumentation, phenotypic assays, and intransformable species also genetically encoded by sensors are often employed. And all these methods have their own drawbacks and limitations. For example, lower tier but affordable instruments 
suffer from low sensitivity and poor reproducibility, yet higher-end machines are usually super expensive and required trained personnel to process the samples and run the machines. In fact, for each of the hormones, there is only a handful of specialized labs in the world that are trusted with the precise quantification of a single hormone of interest. But most scientists do not have access to these elite labs and thus resource resort to less trusted methods and equipment, which reduces the robustness of the conclusions made. Phenotypic assays are a valid and affordable approach, but not always quantitative. For example, I can expose arabidopsis seedlings to ethylene emitted by a ripe banana, observe the triple response, and draw a conclusion that banana makes ethylene. But I cannot quantify how much ethylene was produced and I cannot reliably compare ethylene emission in, let's say, two different banana varieties. Furthermore, the amounts of ethylene produced by tissues other than ripening fruits are way too low to reliably detect with phenotypic assays. Then the genetic biosensor approach is gaining more and more traction, but is limited to transformable species only. Nonetheless, with the recent advent of transformation technologies, if I had to bet on which approach has the best prospects down the line, that would be biosensors. Thus, the focus of the remainder of my talk today will be on synthetic, genetically encoded biosensors, in our case, hormone reporters. First, to bring everyone to the same page, let me explain what a genetically encoded biosensor is. A typical biosensor we use, such as a transcriptional reporter depicted here, is a recombinant DNA construct that contains a tandem of hormone-specific transcription factor binding site. This is the part of the construct that confers hormone-responsive behavior to the sensor. A virtual or synthetic core promoter, um, that's to recruit RNA polymerase and general transcription factors. A coding region, such as that for fluorescent protein that enables the visualization of the sites of reporter activity. A subcellular localization tag. This is a part of the construct that targets the fluorescent protein of interest to the desired subcellular compartment. And a terminator that is required for proper RNA processing and translation. By visualizing when and where the reporter is expressed, we can infer the levels of a particular hormone's activity. Individual reporters, such as DR5 for oxen, EBS for ethylene, CCSN, cytokinin and so on, have been described for many plant hormones. What we are doing is we're working on multiplexing several such reporters into a single construct. Why? Because our goal is to monitor multiple hormones at once, as no hormone works in isolation and multiple growth regulators cross talk to one another. We're using previously characterized transcriptional sensors, as well as building novel synthetic reporters and then stacking them together. How are we doing it? To generate and stack our constructs, we're using so-called Golden Braid 3.0 technology developed by Diego Arzais and Tony Granet groups in Spain um, at the IBMCP institution on the basis of Golden Gate. The method relies on type 2S restriction enzymes that recognize one sequence of DNA, but cut in a nearby location of any sequence, that is in a sequence independent manner, making it possible to generate user-defined overhangs that flank our fragments of interest, which makes it then possible to assemble our fragments of interest in very specific order dictated by us as users. And through reiterative rounds of 
um, digesting at 37 degrees and ligating our fragments with the ligase at 16 degrees centigrade, we can assemble multi-fragment constructs fairly rapidly. And in golden braid, the overhang sequences that flank each fragment follow specific grammar that enables us to reuse the DNA parts that we make in multiple constructs, as well as to share our DNA parts with the rest of the research community. And once individual reporters are assembled, um, they can be combined in tandem using reiterative rounds of golden braid um, cloning to make multi-hormone reporters in a single larger construct. Okay, let's say we can make the reporter constructs, but how many fluorescent proteins can we distinguish in the same cell at once? Remember, our goal is to multiplex the reporters for several hormones in a single construct. Spectrally, we can reliably separate only three colors at once, blue fluorescent protein, yellow fluorescent protein, and red fluorescent protein. But we can distinguish more than three proteins by sending fluorescent proteins to different subcellular compartments via specific targeting signals. Three, if we have three fluorescent um, proteins and we have three localization signals, three by three equals nine, we have the ability to distinguish nine reporters for nine hormones. One of the potential problems with construct stacking is gene silencing. This is an RNA interference mediated process that results in poor expression or even complete shutdown of the transgene of interest, and in some cases also the downregulation of sequence-related host genes. So when multiplexing, we have to worry about silencing. So how do we try to avoid this? Um, we have developed a set of rules designed to minimize such as diversifying fluorescent protein sequences at the nucleotide level, taking advantage of code and redundancy. So we can work with three different reds, three different yellows, and three different blues that are identical at the protein level. All three are the same. All three, um, let's say three reds are the same, yellows are the same, three blues are the same, uh, in between the same color, but are divergent at the nucleotide level. We have also been trying to, as much as possible, avoid using native DNA parts and instead use non-endogenous or synthetic DNA elements. We do our best not to recycle any DNA parts. For that, we generated a collection of synthetic divergent minimal promoters and terminators. So for each of the individual units within the larger construct, we use unique elements every time. And uh, for transit assays, we have um, a little trick that we can use. We co-express a silencing suppressor, a protein known as P19. It's a viral protein that binds and sequesters small interfering RNAs and blocks RNA-induced silencing. Unfortunately, this particular protein is toxic to stable transformants, so we only use it in transit assays. Um, then to detect specific hormones, we had to choose the best hormone responsive elements. So how do we go about that? Well, we went the easy way. We asked the experts. We surveyed some of the scientists working on different hormones and followed in their recommendations. Turns out having a desired sequence on paper is a long, long way from having it made as commercial companies such as Invitrogen, IDT, and others are unable to synthesize highly repetitive sequences. So we developed a method that takes advantage of golden braid and allows us to make repetitive promoters in a test tube. I won't have time to explain how that works in detail, but I would be happy to share that after my talk if anyone is interested. The basic idea is that we dilute repetitive sequences with random spacers. So if in, in dark colors is what we want, we just insert random sequences in between, and then we remove those sequences post-commercial synthesis using golden braid. 
Um, we are three years into the biosensor project and have completed generating a collection of DNA parts uh, for the multi-hormone recorder. We have 30 hormone-specific proximal promoters for eight out of nine hormones. We have 27 synthetic and viral core promoters, 18 subcellular localization tags, 27 coding regions for various reporters, uh, fluorescent proteins, um, histochemical enzymes, and luminescent proteins. Uh, we also have 25 synthetic and viral terminators, and we have two so-called tester constructs that are com represent combined parts. And I will explain what those are next. So as we're making new DNA parts, we're validating the functionality of each element in the context of the so-called tester transcriptional unit in transient expression assay. So what is a test tester unit? A tester transcriptional unit contains a 35S viral proximal promoter, a 35S core promoter, a nuclear localization signal, a fluorescent protein uh, that shines in the green to yellow spectrum, which is uh, white pit, and a viral 35S terminator. And then what we do is we replace one DNA element at a time, such as we swap white pit, for example, for um, a red M cherry. Accordingly, we would expect in that case to see a shift in the fluorescence emission spectrum. So that allows us to validate one part at a time. So in this particular scenario, in fact, we see that the fluorescence shifts from the green spectrum to the uh, red spectrum. In our collection, we have three C-terminal nucleotide version of each white pit, M-cherry, and BFP, and as well as a triple um, version of three versions of um, white pits stuck together, triple white pit. Um, please forgive the fairly low quality of these images, as these are not confocals, but just fluorescent scope images. It would have been prohibitively expensive for us to characterize over 100 DNA parts with confocal, so instead we're using regular fluorescence microscope for test transcriptional units. And then later on, we move on to confocals when we start combining them into meaningful constructs. We have also made three N-terminal nucleotide versions, each of white pet, M-cherry, and BFP, as well as the triple white pet compatible with C-terminal fusions. So this duplication of collection, C-terminal fusion and N-terminal fusion, allows us to add subcellular localization tags on either end of the fusion protein um, and this is necessary because some localization tags only work when fused at a specific end. For example, a mitochondrial transit peptide would only work is placed if, if it is placed in the N-terminus, whereas a peroxisomal signal needs to be in the C-terminus in order to function. In contrast, something like nuclear localization signal can be attached on either end and still be functional. So sometimes we have to make choices as to where we're placing our tag, hence we had to duplicate our fluorescent protein collection. We have generated multiple nucleotide versions of four subcellular targeting tags uh, for the nucleus, mitochondria, peroxisome, and plasma membrane. One thing you may notice that they all appear leaky. That is not restricted exclusively to the subcellular compartments of interest. And this is something that is expected of highly expressed transients in transient assays and plants and stems um, from the overloading the cell's endogenous trafficking system. And as I will show you later, this problem usually resolves itself in stable transgenics uh, for which these constructs were ultimately built. We have generated and started testing synthetic and viral core promoters, so-called luciferase assays. Dual luciferase um, assays are done in tobacco. Um, this dual reporter allows us to normalize the 
activity of new parts that we develop with respect to a well-characterized minimal viral core promoter. So we're testing, we're looking at the ratios of new part relative to a standardized um, 35S core sequence. And a couple of new core promoters that we developed appear to be even stronger than the viral 35S. Um, and 35S, the gold standard the plant biology community uses the most. Um, all 20 synthetic terminators we've built and tested in dual luciferase assays are comparable or outperform the strength of the 35S. Here's, um, trying to use my mouse here, okay? Uh, relative to the 35S, so these are all the normal ones. Um, at least this is true in transit assays and tobacco, moving also to this um, construct of stable transformants to confirm their functionality. And then for hormone-specific promoters that we have built, we need to test each of them in the context of test transcriptional unit, both in the minus and plus hormone conditions. This is an example of a cytokine-inducible um, version of CCSN promoter. Here's the promoter um, in transit assays and tobacco. As expected, the promoter shows nice inducibility. This is the minus, this is plus um, cytokine and zeatin. And the expression of the reporter, again, is not limited to the nucleus. Here we had a nuclear localization signal and we're expecting the construct, uh, the protein to be targeted um, specifically to the nuclei. And again, um, we're seeing this leakiness uh, pretty much for every single marker, again, which is not uncommon for transit assays. And what I want to show you next is that this issue of leakiness automatically resolves itself when we go to lower expression levels in stably transformed plants. Here's an example. Um, this is a plant, a stable transformed stably transformed Arabidopsis in minus and plus the hormone. Um, the expression of the reporter protein is by far predominant um, in the nucleus as expected, even within the nucleoles within the nucleus. Uh, and the some basal expression of the reporter in the absence of the hormone is expected given endogenous cytokinin levels in the plant, but the expression is greatly enhanced upon exogenous zeatin cytokinin addition. Um, this is a mitochondrial version of the cytokinin inducible TCSN promoter driving M cherry and little pink speckles that you see are, are mitochondria. This is a peroxisomal version of the oxygen inducible DR5, DR5V2 promoter driving blue fluorescent protein and the arrows are pointing um, to the blue peroxisomes. This is a nuclear version of a highly sensitive ethylene inducible reporter EBSN driving white pet. And this is a brand new reporter harboring a synthetic promoter designed by our group in a collaboration um, with Elena Zemlanska's group and her bioinformatics team in Russia. So this is a close up minus and plus the hormone and here is um, a zoom out view, the whole ceiling image of the same ethylene reporter. There's basically no or very, very little activity in the control media and very strong induction in the presence of the ethylene precursor ACC. And you can see again, this classical triple response. The ACC treat, um, treated plants are much shorter and show exaggeration of the apical hook. Again, which are classical phenotypes of the ethylene response triggered by um, the added hormone in this case, or its precursor. Here is, this, uh, here is the GUS reporter version of the same ethylene sensor. GUS is a colorimetric enzyme encoded by a beta-glucuronidase gene that converts a colorless substrate, X-gluc, to a blue precipitate, a blue product. So this dark blue staining that you see, almost black staining, 
um, is due to the saturating level of the EBS reporter activity in plants exposed to the ethylene precursor, ACC. And this level of activation is a measurement relative to what has been available up to now in the plant biology toolbox. For comparison, I'm showing, showing to you the mo most widely adopted ethylene reporter the plant um, biology community uses that harbors a 5X EBS classical promoter. Coincidentally, this 5X EBS reporter is something that I built myself as a graduate student in the ECRA lab 20 years ago. And sadly, no other comparable tools have been made for ethylene since that time. And as you can see, the new EBS version, the one on the left, that we recently generated in the Alonso Stepanova lab uh, has a much greater sensitivity and a broader domain of expression than the original construct that I've made 20 years ago. And this is not due to the number of EBS elements, 10 versus five, as we have recently remade the classical EBS now with 10 repeats and got only a mild boost in the reporter sensitivity. This is a third panel. Um, so this is 10X, this is 5X, and there's only a minor um, increase in the sensitivity with a doubling um, number of the promoter elements. Both classical reporters are active, but only in some tissues, whereas the domain of expression of the new ethylene sensor encompasses the entire plant. And that's exactly what we were hoping to get. Another ethylene responsive construct we've built as part of the um, National Science Foundation project contains 10 copies of a divergent synthetic EBS sequence known as 2EBS-S10 um, that was optimized by another group for binding over transcriptional master regulator of ethylene in vitro. And as you can see, in vivo, that reporter is also much weaker than the new EBS that we've developed. Finally, the control mutant EBS new construct that is identical to the EBS new, except that it harbors mutations in the transcription factor binding site of the ethylene response master IN3, and it shows no expression. In fact, um, it looks very similar to a wild type that has no transgene. And that confirms that the reporter activity that we see in the wild type 10X EBS new is due to ethylene signaling via this transcription factor IN3 rather than um, responses to some unrelated stimuli. And the background signal of the control construct, again, is pretty much um, the same as in wild type plants. So this is um, not a real staining. So we have recently patented the sequence of the new ethylene promoter, and we believe that it can be used both in research and in agriculture to confer ethylene-regulated expression to any gene of interest. We have preliminary data to suggest that this promoter also works in stably transformed tomato seedlings, opening doors to manipulating ethylene control processes, um, such as plant senescence or fruit ripening in agriculturally important species, and ultimately, hopefully, leading to reduced food spoilage. We have started different fluorescent reporters. We have assembled several versions of the triple ACE sensor. ACE stands for oxygen, cytokine, and ethylene, and started testing um, this reporters and transit assays and also made stably transformed Arabidopsis plants. All three combined reporters work well in transit assays with oxygen-responsive blue fluorescent protein targeted to proxisomes, cytokinin-responsive M-cherry detected in mitochondria, and then ethylene-inducible YPET accumulating in the nucleus. Here is finally a confocal microscopy image of the triple ACE construct transiently expressed in tobacco epidermis. We can clearly see all three reporters in their respective compartments upon triple hormone induction. Oxygen-inducible blue fluorescent protein is in peroxisomes. Ethylene-inducible green to yellow white pet is in the nuclei. And cytokinin-inducible 
red M cherry is in the mitochondria. In stable lines in the Arvidopsis, cytokine-inducible mitochondrial M cherry and ethylene-inducible white pet are easy to see, but oxygen-inducible peroxisomal BFP has proven very difficult to detect, in part to BFPB, not as bright as other fluorescent proteins, but also because peroxisomes tend to be very mobile within the cell and thus difficult to focus on and, and capture. We have also observed some silencing issues in later generations of progenic plants. In, plan, in fact, um, this particular version of the triple reporter was generated by us prior to us building the diverse collection of core promoters and terminators. So we did recycle some of the regulatory DNA parts in the construction of this reporters, breaking our own, own rules, which probably is the reason for why we see silencing. We have recently remade the ACE hormometer to generate a 3.0 and a 4.0 version where we have swapped colors and utilized unique and active most core promoters and terminators in combination with the brightest fluorescent proteins in our collection to maximize reporter activity. For example, ACE 4.0 that I'm showing here, ethylene-inducible M-cherry is going to uh, peroxisomes as expected, um, mitochondrial cytokinin-inducible protein is in fact in mitochondria, and then the nuclear are lighting up um, oxygen responsive um, white pet. So um, this is a very promising lead. We have not yet uh, looked at stably transformed transgenic plants. We have transformed this construct both into Arvidopsis and tomato, and are currently waiting for the to grow in set seeds. So fingers crossed. And to summarize, um, our National Science Foundation funded eager project enabled us to generate a collection of DNA parts, as well as make and initiate testing of the so-called ACE biosensors that combine reporters for oxygen, cytokinin, and ethylene uh, with a selectable marker. And the ultimate goal that was out of the scope of this initial proof of concept project would be to make a hormometer that can sense all nine non-peptide hormones in plants. And we will be applying for additional funding for this more ambitious project down the road. And the ultimate future goal um, would be to transform this multi-horn biosensor into plants to investigate the molecular consequences of mutations, stress factors, diseases, and so on in the lab setting, and hopefully be able to monitor hormonal balance in plants exposed to stress in the field, not just Arabidopsis, but any type of crop species. And with this, I'd like to acknowledge my funding sources, National Science Foundation and North Carolina State University, my long-term collaborator and co-PI, Dr. Jose Alonso, and our talented postdocs and students. Uh, I only talked about one project today and the lead pro uh, person on this uh, hormometer project was Kathy Fernandez. Um, Trino is our virologist collaborator uh, who has been very helpful with the design of viral promoters. And Elena is a bioinformatician from Novosibirsk University in Russia involved in the design of the synthetic ethylene promoter. And with this, I'll be happy to take your questions. Thank you for your attention. Okay, thank you, Anna, for your presentation. I'm just gonna remind people that if they have any questions, they can raise their hand or they can leave their questions on the chat and, and we can answer them through that way. And Anna, I see that we have one first question from Fred Gould, I'm gonna read it for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, it says, from a basic perspective, what would you consider success five years from now in terms of what we would teach incoming graduate students about plant biology that we can't teach them now? Would it be useful to plant ecology and plant evolution students? 
And then similarly, five to 10 years from now, if you are successful, how how would these results be used by plant breeders other than for controlling ripening or spoilage? Yeah, very good question. So at this point, we are still in proof of concept stages. I need to be explicit about this. So if we succeed at making a hormometer that can monitor multiple um, hormones at once, it opens lots and lots of avenues for looking at misbalance of hormones. Historically, we've been looking at one hormone at a time. And very often we miss the main regulator. If you change the levels or the sensitivity to one of the hormones, then you actually trigger a chain reaction where you um, alter the responses and by synthetic pathways and perception pathways um, for all other hormones. So that's in a lab setting. So this is something that we will be able to address if we are successful at implementing this in um, more than just a Arabidopsis. Um, because there's a lot of um, objection to using transgenic plants, I do not see farmers planting my uh, biosensor plants in the field, um, but perhaps you can be planting them in literally in a pot, in a container. Um, you won't be able to look at the soil microbiome interactions, but you can uh, look at the um, drought, humidity um, uh, changes, and uh, maybe pathogen attacks that will be still um, possible to observe in plants that are grown in pots. I think the bottleneck that we're all facing is perception by the public of transgenic organisms as safe. And I think it's, as we have a lot of discussion about this in the GS program, it's probably um, our fault that we have not made it accessible and understandable uh, by the general community. I think over time, I'm hoping that we can make the concept of transgenic less, less scary by making it more um, understandable by the community. And hopefully, maybe not in five years, but maybe in 10 or 20, people will, I'm sure, accept transgenics because there's no other way of moving forward if we wanna feel the growing population in the world. Fred, does this answer your question? It, that answers my question somewhat, but I think actually the final part of your answer brings up this question. You know, especially what you're doing is so, you know, elegant yet complicated. And it's very hard to explain something like this to um, an audience, even our audience, right? That comes from different perspectives and cares about this. So it really is a challenge, um, it seems to me, to, you know, like who do you work with in terms of, uh, I don't know, graphics or anything else to, to make this um, not scary? <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, like I don't understand this, therefore I'm scared of it. So how, how do you? So my approach, start early, because younger kids are less affected by media, and they have more trust in science than adults do, for whatever reason. So my emphasis has been working, um, has been working with kids. You've heard of our Plants for Kids outreach program, and you can tell kids um, what can be done, and they say, why not do it in reality? Why don't do it in the field? And we'll say, ask your mom or dad. Why people are object, objecting to this. But I think if we start early and from early age, young generation considers GMOs as a norm, um, then I think down the road when they become adults, the technology will be, feel less controversial to them than it is now. So I don't think we can change the minds of current adults, but we can change the minds of current kids that will be adults in 20 years. That's what I'm hoping in 20 years, um, the the society will accept GMOs as a way forward. Yeah, I, I just end by saying, you know, it's pretty incredible the intricacy of how plants grow. 
and um, you know, we really <laughs> think about human medicine and how much has been done there, how little we really know about plant biology, you know, the in interaction. So it's great. Yeah, and most of funding has been shuffled in, um, I don't know, channeled into uh, biomedical research. There's a lot less funding for plants. So if we get more funding, maybe we can put more effort into educating the community as well, right? People that are willing to work um, with schools, with uh, adults, with uh, communities, they struggle obtaining enough funding to be able to do their work. So I felt as plant scientists, we've been always at the disadvantage compared to NIH funding, for example. So NSF-founded research is a much smaller niche than NIH-funded research. So if I were uh, at the leadership level, I will be sending more funding towards um, basic sciences, both in plants and in animals. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Fred. I think we have a question from Ruben Rejan Alvarez. Hey, Anna, great talk. Uh, uh, it's always uh, great to hear for, uh, from you. You're very didactic. Uh, I have a question, but first I would like to make a comment uh, about what you were just saying. Uh, I think one can make the argument that, I mean, knowing more about the basic biology of how plants work, that's, uh, and that's what these uh, new tools that you are uh, developing uh, are for, uh, that's, that's good for plant breeders. Uh, having a, a, a good understanding of uh, how basic processes uh, work in plants, that's that's a deliberable that can be used uh, uh, by breeders. Uh, so we don't have to, I mean, we. I think that maybe it's better to frame it in that way rather than we're gonna be putting fluorescent plants in the, uh, in the field. Uh, because uh, what you, what we learn uh, thanks to these new, uh, this, these new tools will allow us to uh, design better, uh, better plants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the question. So uh, uh, when, when CRISPR-Cas9 uh, came over, um, uh, there was a lot of talk about how it could be used and, and one of the, uh, of the uh, approaches uh, that, was, uh, that was commented on was this idea of uh, uh, inserting uh, reporters uh, in the in-situ genomic uh, location uh, of uh, your uh, gene of interest. Uh, could you comment on how uh, successful that approach uh, has been and if there are reports of, uh, of different expression patterns, et cetera, when uh, you use this approach versus just uh, dropping a, a transgene uh, wherever it may land in the, uh, in the genome? Thank you. So dropping in a fluorescent protein, let's say, in a native genomic location, requires homologous recombination, which can be done if you supply a template, but thus far has been extremely inefficient. So making CRISPR in DELS is very easy through the non-homologous and joining pathway, but homologous gene replacement or insertion of a fluorescent protein or colorimetric marker in a gene has thus far been extremely, extremely inefficient. So there are many groups that are currently working on trying to improve the efficiency of homologous recombination, but that so far the success has been very limited. We can get the recombination events in culture, in cells, so individual cells, but then regenerating those cells into whole plants is another big bottleneck, major challenge. So the classical like flower dipping 
um, in Arabidopsis types of approaches have not been very compatible with homologous recombination, um, uh, even with advent of technologies like CRISPR using fingers or talons that allow us to make a very guided cut within the target site. Um, most of the events in the gene adventures will still be indels, insertion deletions, as opposed to incorporation of uh, fluorescent protein or another um, change that is provided on a, a repair template. So I do think that the technologies are gonna improve over time and maybe um, in a five year period or so, this is gonna be more of a reality, but currently this is still a major bottleneck. So in terms of the expression patterns, so when you do add something to your protein, uh, to your um, coding region of your protein, you are risking the possibility of your fluorescent protein interfering with proper folding of your active part, let's say transcription factor that you're trying to tag. So, but there are ways around it. You can add linkers. Linkers are usually just glycine and alanines, like small amino acids that are flexible. So there are ways around that. But there are other things that we cannot control, like changing instability, changing in overall shape and size of your protein. So it may not fit, for example, into, through the nucleopore if you're adding big extra domains to your favorite protein. So in a case-by-case -case basis, we have to evaluate um, what the risks are to the protein that we're trying to target, as opposed to when we are dropping an extra copy, as long as we're dropping that copy in a safe location that is not disrupting any genes, but not disrupting the activity of the native gene, I think we're um, probably risking less that way, especially in the case when we're working with synthetic constructs, there's no native parts. So when we're dropping in, we don't really care where to insert, as long as it lands in an active part of the genome rather than heterochromatinized or a condensed part that is not being expressed. Okay. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay, Anna, I see that we had two more questions. Uh, one from Jennifer Baltzigar and along the same lines as Fred's question, what other research needs to be done before this can be translated to the field? I don't know if you wanna add more to that um, as well. Okay, so some species are easily transformable, but only some varieties can be transformed. So in something like soybean or maize, there's one or two varieties that are easily transformable. So if you wanna put it in a variety that a grower wants to grow, um, you have to develop new transformation protocols. Um, if you're doing it via crossing in species uh, that can be, um, like in some species you cannot do crossing, uh, not because plants are sterile, but because you would segregate all the desirable traits away, such as, I don't know, sweet potato, um, because they're highly heterozygous. And if you start crossing, you're going to mess up the, um, the gene bank of that particular plant, and you will uh, get a very different uh, outcome in terms of the size of your potato and so on um, than what you started out with. But in transformable species, such as soybean and, and maize that I mentioned, what people end up doing is they would transform the variety that is transformable and then go for many rounds of backcrossing to the desired parental background to introduce, to introgress the transgene um, to the desired genotype. Um, with the exception of the small region where the insertion is because of, you cannot recombine it that close to the insertion side. So to be able to make the technologies more accessible, you have to develop transformation protocols for a wider variety of species, not every plant species is currently transformable. Even things like sweet potato, yeah, there are some reports from China where people are, have succeeded at transforming, but the efficiency is super low and it's not something that can be done for every variety. And in fact, when people try to replicate a protocol published by one lab, it's often not replicatable. So maybe whoever got the transformation to work either has golden hands or just it worked by chance. So um, 
Now, as you're probably aware, there are a lot of effort into improving transformation efficiency, uh, both at um, being able to regenerate the plants in tissue culture, as most of species are still being transformed through um, tissue culture methods, as well as transformation of plants, uh, not in a petri dish, but uh, through cutting and regeneration in soil grown plants. So you can cut a tip of a tomato plant, um, add your, uh, let's say, agrobacterial culture that carries a transgene, and your transgene will get integrated, and then the new part of the plant that gets regenerated at the cut site will be transformed. And that does not require sterile conditions and does not require expensive media, um, but the efficiency thus far have been fairly low and people are working in optimizing those. So if you can make transformation easily accessible to a wider variety of people, even to farmers, as opposed to just specialized labs, I think that would open doors um, to making transgenics in crop species that have not been amenable to transformation up to this point. So that's from the scientific perspective. And then the sociological aspects, the um, perception of GMOs as evil, that's a completely different story. Okay, great. And you had, you had commented on that earlier as well. And we have another question from Paul Ulang. Are there other uses of model systems like Arapidopsis for envisioning or deploying such a novel sensor? Uh, Drosophilia and zebrafish come to mind? Um, yes, you can grow Arapidopsis in the field side by side with something else, right? So in theory, if you cannot transform your corn plants or your sunflower plants, you can still transform Arabidopsis and grow it in the same field. So if um, your Arabidopsis is experiencing drought, chance, chances are that the neighboring plant, um, that is, let's say, your sunflower plant, is also experiencing drought. And because of the conservation of the pathways, um, I'm pretty confident to say that whatever happens in Arabidopsis, uh, similar pathways are turned on um, in crop species. So a lot of what we learn in Arabidopsis can be extrapolated to or um, extended to uh, crop species as well. But I have not seen transgenic Arabidopsis grown in fields. I think a lot of people would object to that, again, from the GMO perspective. Okay, I was just gonna say, we have time for one last question. And I hear, I see that Eli Hornstein has a comment here to Fred's question about training. I sometimes describe our knowledge of plant hormone involvement in a lot of processes as like a doctor saying that blood is involved, quote unquote, in a particular condition or case. It's obviously essential, but seems to be everywhere. For a lot of plant biologists not specialized in hormones, we see changes in hormone processes in our experiments, but treat them as background in the same way a surgeon performs performing an operation on a particular organ would probably focus on the details of the organ rather than what the blood is doing, quote unquote, within it. Anything like the hormometer, I'm sorry, hormometer that provides access to more detailed hormone information without requiring a whole new set of experiments to my mind would make people learning about specialized parts of plant biology a lot more willing to engage with hormones. So there was a, a comment from one of our students. Um, very good comment. Um, and uh, my collaborator, um, Trino, many of you know, um, Trino Asensio Abanis from Biochemistry. So he's a virologist and they've been studying Gemini viruses for ages. And then they see a lot of morphological changes happening in the plants upon viral infection. And they say, yeah, probably hormones are messed up, but that's as far as they go. So exactly what is happening. And if you wanna try to combat the symptoms of the virus, if you know what the hormone changes are, you may have new avenues how to stop viral propagation or at least the 
um, the phenotypic changes that are happening in the plants and detrimental consequences of viral infection. So I think if we understand better um, the balance and this um, homeostasis of hormones in plants under various stressors, like in this case, the virus, um, we would open doors to um, new approaches to dealing with those types of uh, issues in agriculture and in research. Um, you're muted. Yeah, oh, there you go. I'm afraid we've reached our, our one o'clock time. And so I just want to thank you very much for presenting today. We're really excited to have you. And um, for students to please uh, get in contact with Anna if you have any further questions. So bravo, thank you so much, Anna. Thank you so much, it was fun.